Auckland's growth is New Zealand's growth, is how the Auckland Council framed its bid for collaboration with the new government last year. Now, a previously unreleased report argues that central government isn't as effective as it should be in Auckland and that there's a need for a quick revamp in policy. This Radio New Zealand Insight programme explores Auckland's call for change. Welcome, everybody. This is indeed a great day for cycling. If ever there was a sign of Auckland and government togetherness, it was here at the launch in February of the Nelson Street Cycleway project. Let me introduce our very ready for action Minister of Transport, the Honourable Simon Bridges. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Nearly $10 million of taxpayers' money will convert a disused motorway off-ramp into a link as part of a network of commuter cycleways. Auckland ratepayers are contributing only $1 million of the cost. It's a tangible sign of a government going the extra mile in New Zealand's biggest city. So to you all, let's get out and open up this cycleway. Gosh, it's a great day. Auckland is becoming increasingly different from the rest of the country. It's home to one-third of the country's population, one and a half million people, and is by far the most ethnically diverse. A little over half of Aucklanders are Pākehā, compared with nearly three-quarters in the rest of the country. One in five in the Auckland region is Asian, one in seven is Pacifica, both are twice the national figure. It's home to areas of the country's widest social deprivation. Following the amalgamation of its eight local bodies into one four years ago, the Auckland Council is now the country's second largest political institution. And Auckland is growing fast. It will accommodate 60% of New Zealand's population growth expected in the next three decades. A public law specialist, May Chen, has become an advocate for Auckland after relocating nearly two years ago from her Wellington office. Auckland is now so different to Wellington and the rest of New Zealand that it really needs to be treated as if it's almost a different country. I'm Todd Nile, Radio New Zealand's Auckland correspondent, and this insight explores whether the evolution of this city as the country's only globally competitive centre requires the government to play its part in a different way. Thanks for the opportunity on this site to make uh, this sort of housing project work. Difficult site. The chief executive of the Housing Foundation, Brian Donnelly, opening an affordable home development last year in Papatoitoi. The blend of council-owned land and a shared ownership deal from the foundation made the dream of Tama and Cynthia Tairoa and their four children to live in their own home a reality. I always thought it would be a lot harder. You know, I never ever thought that we'll be able to own our own house. Um, it's been an amazing experience. I mean, uh, from the time we applied for it to the time that we actually moved in, it was real easy. The shortage and high cost of housing is one of Auckland's greatest challenges. Years of insufficient building means the city's estimated to be around 20,000 homes short. And while construction is increasing, things are getting worse, not better. Despite the polite public comments when Auckland Council leaders and government ministers jointly appear for housing-related announcements, there remains tension. The government-driven housing accord, which over three years will fast-track planning in designated special housing areas, is intended to boost supply and slow the rise in prices. The accord's into its second year, and average sale prices have risen 13% in the past year. Within the council, there's frustration at what is considered a simplistic focus on land supply. Larry Murphy's the professor of property at the University of Auckland's Business School and says that's understandable. I think the current policy of the special housing areas 
at one level it's it is about releasing land and it's providing some houses but it also it's about a kind of battle between central and local government uh, central government saying we just want to free up and build housing but there is a need to actually look at a whole range of issues related to sustainability of cities looking at the um, role of infrastructure and a whole range of other things and the long-term benefits of building houses in certain places so i think there needs to be some policies involve central and local government working together to address local problems um, that have national significance. Another part of Auckland's housing problem is its impact on the Maori and Pacifica populations. Damon Salesa is an associate professor and the head of Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland. He says there's growing disparity between Maori and Pacifica and the rest. We're seeing home ownership rates plummet. Yeah, if, if we're imagining there at historic levels for all Aucklanders, for Māori and Pacific Aucklanders, it is particularly acute, and they're down to below 30% for Pacific Aucklanders, and so this is an astonishing thing. And, and when we think of New Zealand, and the New Zealand way is typically to have a, an enormous, almost all of your wealth in your home, we will realise that these people without homes are essentially locked out of of being wealthy New Zealanders. There's very few other paths to becoming wealthy um, in New Zealand. He says that feeds a cycle of disadvantage. This is, I guess, the really deep problem, and it's one that points out the difficulty with the Wellington government, is that we now know that New Zealand is the worst place in the OECD for turning economic disadvantage into educational underperformance. So being poor is the true vicious circle. So you're poor, so you do not do well at school on the whole, so you get poorer. Yeah, obviously that is a cycle that cannot stand in New Zealand or we're going to be living in a New Zealand that we all wouldn't want to live in. And so that's something, again, education is the remit of the Wellington government, yet the lived experience is often Auckland governments, and there we have that sort of structural um, tension. Many advocating on Auckland's behalf believe the government has to be convinced to write out the cheques to solve Auckland's biggest problems. The Auckland Council can plan how it hopes new housing should be delivered, but says it can do little aside from putting land that it owns into joint ventures. The government makes policy affecting first home ownership, taxation, and through Housing New Zealand is the biggest residential landlord in the city. Good morning, passengers. Welcome to the Transport Centre. Transport is the other headline issue. Project by project, there's close cooperation between the city and the government's transport agencies. On the city's flagship project, the $2.4 billion downtown rail tunnel, the City Rail Link, there's agreement on everything bar a two- to three-year timing gap. But the transport issue exercising Aucklanders at the moment is whether the city needs new ways to fund important transport projects over the next 30 years. The government's agreed to stay silent during debate over whether Aucklanders might favour higher petrol taxes or a charge to use motorways, but it appears to be cool on the ideas. At the same time, the Mayor wants to explore having a long-term agreement with the government on which projects should be built. The Minister of Transport, Simon Bridges, says such an agreement would have benefits for both the government and council. The pros for the government are really that as the main funder of transport in Auckland, we get to be there much more around a table helping ensure and tease out what we see as not necessarily an optimal program for the future 
and ensure that it is affordable, that it is effective in terms of turning the dial on congestion. And we get to really play more of a part in uh, were we to do something like this, um, the, the strategy uh, long term. I think the pros for the uh, City Council and for Auckland are you know, obvious. They have the meal ticket, if you like, the funder there um, at the table. But he says it wouldn't be simple. It, I think, would be challenging. It would involve give and take. And I think from government's perspective, it would require the Auckland Transport and Council to be prepared to um, have some flexibility and look at change in terms of their, their planning and what they want to see. The Ministry of Transport has highlighted the growing challenge of Auckland in papers to Mr Bridges. Over the next few decades, it expects increasing urbanisation will mean solutions to ease traffic congestion will become more costly. Bigger demand for public transport and cycleways could put pressure on revenue traditionally collected from motorists. Mr Bridges says the balance between a growing Auckland and parts of the country with both declining population and economic activity will get harder to manage. It will be a complex picture. And I suppose one way of phrasing it is do you just keep following the people and success and and to some people's way of thinking make it worse because um, you are ensuring excellence there or do you make sure you're spreading it round in some other way? They're, they're difficult issues. I don't think they're on us today. I think we still do have a sustainable funding model for look, certainly 10 years, probably actually a bit more than that. Auckland's ethnic diversity is cited as another reason for the government and its ministries to be better grounded in the city. A city is defined as super diverse when more than 25% of its population is born overseas. In Auckland's case, it's 44% and it has more than 200 ethnicities. A public law specialist, May Chen, says her focus is now on the implications on law, policy making and business. All of that matters to who we are and what we're becoming and all I'm thinking to myself is that we have great officials in Wellington that is not super diverse, making policy for Auckland which is very super diverse and that does have implications when you consider that the public service has less than 7% Asian officials and I think what's something like 1.8% in senior management. I think, I think those sorts of things matter. May Chen says research shows diversity delivers more innovative and productive people, but also brings challenges. Clearly, greater super diversity also results in more varied religious views, different cultural views, different values. Um, that will have challenges for our social capital as we seek to milk as much financial capital as we can from international students, which is our fifth biggest export earner, from tourism, which is predominantly being fed through from Asia, um, as, we, as we try and get more in foreign investment, but also more migrants through the skilled category, the biggest group of skilled migrants in New Zealand, from India. She says there are some obvious flaws in government-funded activity in Auckland. I met the communications officer at the Electoral Commission. 70% of migrants didn't vote. And when I said to her, look, what's your budget like for Auckland? She said, well, we don't get any more money to educate people in Auckland about voting than we do anywhere else. Now, that astounds me because of the demographic. Part of the drive behind amalgamating Auckland's eight local bodies in 2010 was to create an environment to significantly lift the region's economic growth. The goals are ambitious, 
including boosting real economic growth from the past decade's average of 3% to 5% annually. The Council's last update put it at 3.1%. David Wilson's an Aucklander and the Chief Executive of Northland's Regional Development Agency. He's doing a doctorate on governance and regional economic development using Auckland and its mid-2000s Metro Project growth plan as a case study. David Wilson says despite the creation in Auckland of a single council agency in 2010, the government's approach to economic development is still very centralised. To me the conversation really has to be now about notions that came out strongly through the Metro project around partnership between Wellington and Auckland. That conversation needs to be carried on further and there needs to be more of a joined up approach to exercising the levers that we can possibly get in Auckland to change the way the economy is focused. Why do we necessarily need in Auckland New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, Callaghan, Ministry of Primary Industries, Tapuni Kōkiri, Ministry of Social Development, Housing, Education, all of these government departments delivering things in the Auckland economy, programs and projects that have a wide effect on the regional economy, these things need to be far better coordinated. The Chief Executive of the City's Economic Development Agency, AT, Brett O'Reilly, says the pace of policy making is also an issue, especially when developing a service economy like Auckland's with a rapidly growing information and communications technology sector. He says the government's recent moves to set up a screen and digital advisory group is good, but took too long. That review was prolonged over years, not just months, and the net effect of that was by the time the first set of initiatives were launched, they weren't based on market reality. So we went through a process while the industry frankly suffered of discussions with government around what we thought was required and ATED were involved in that, so were the New Zealand Film Commission and others. To the credit of the government, they listened, and they they then altered those incentives. But I think the process that they've put in place now would have ensured that we wouldn't have had to have gone through that pain because there would have been no ambiguity about really what was happening in, in the market. He says a key issue is how central government works in Auckland and how it integrates the work that it does. Like all successful cities around the world, Auckland is growing. The government and the Auckland Council disagree on one of the main policies shaping the future growth of the city. The council hopes its unitary plan blueprint will emerge from an independent hearings process with the goal of 60 to 70% of future growth being within the urban limit. While the government wants higher density in the urban area, it also wants a more relaxed approach to converting rural land to housing. The Mayor, Len Brown, says that's a touchy topic in the relationship. We're growing up um, faster than we're growing out. You know, 40% of our permits, nearly 40% now are apartments. So that area of respecting the way in which Auckland is developing and the choice of housing and the development of its city centre uh, that's the area where we sometimes still come a little bit unstuck. But even in a country where one city so dominates the national economy, can a government be seen to be treating Auckland differently? The editor of the Auckland-focused Metro magazine, Simon Wilson, thinks anti-Auckland sentiment elsewhere in the country risks holding the government back. I think that's always true and is always going to be true. Um, it is clear that it is harder than ever for 
great parts of the rest of the country to progress economically. And if you look at Wellington, for example, Wellington hasn't grown economically uh, in a very long time. With the exception of the film industry, really, there's very little there that's happened. And, and that's a real problem. We can't just have Auckland succeeding at the expense of the rest of the country. That's obviously true. But a dynamic Auckland, an economically dynamic Auckland, a culturally dynamic Auckland, then has the opportunity to help the rest of the country yeah, because it makes us stronger New Zealand economically. Not everyone's going to want to live here and not everyone should live here. And, and if, but if the city here works well, uh, then the country is working well. Professor Paul Spoonley is the research director for Massey University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. He says the rest of the country needs to understand the importance of an effective Auckland. We've just done some research in the regions and we've encountered quite a lot of hostility towards Auckland. It's seen as being a different New Zealand and that's true in one sense. One of the most interesting things that we're going to have to encounter is how we continue to build Auckland. And for those of us sociologists like myself, it's a fascinating laboratory for a new New Zealand. Um, But that needs also to be understood in the context of a country which itself is going through major change. And I think one of the significant challenges as a political one is how you continue to invest and grow Auckland at the same time that you do that with the rest of New Zealand and you make sure that the rest of New Zealand understands how important Auckland is for this economy. The government acknowledges that Auckland is different. The Minister of Economic Development, Stephen Joyce, says that's not just because it's big. Auckland is also our bet on the world stage. Auckland is uh, the window of New Zealand to the world. Uh, It's the city that we want to see compete with uh, not just the Brisbans and Perths, but the Sydney and Melbournes of the world, which means you do have to treat it a bit differently, and we have to be responsive to that. I actually think that's a question for the whole of New Zealand, actually. I mean, there's there's still a bit of a love-hate relationship uh, between the rest of the country and, and Auckland. And I think we've sort of got to celebrate uh, both parts of New Zealand, the Auckland part and the, the, all the diversity in the rest of New Zealand. So, yep, it's, it's different and, and it's got different challenges. And central government has got to be awake to that. Uh, we have a cabinet which is you know, fairly heavily weighted to be from Auckland. So I think starting at the top, we've got a reasonable understanding of it. There are signs the government is changing the way it's traditionally operated in Auckland. Mr Joyce's own ministry, Business Innovation and Employment, is managing a curiously named venture called the Auckland Co-Design Lab. Often the idea with innovation is that you do take it out of the mothership because um, the potential for the mothership to sort of interfere if you don't is is, um, too great. Jane Strange is its director, leading a small team of lateral thinkers which will target five key social problems in the poorest southern suburbs. In pilot projects, they'll be able to call on the resources of a range of government, council and community agencies. Over the next two years, it'll seek new solutions to long-standing problems. For example, you know, I was talking to a man the other day and he said a Pacifica family, they're renting together, there's three generations in the family renting. And it's a big house, but um, because there are a lot of people with cars in the, in the family, he doesn't want to let the kids play on the driveway, it's not a safe place to play without being supervised, so he needs to keep them inside. And, you know, he loves his mother-in-law, but doesn't necessarily want to see her every second of the day, even though she, it's great for the kids. So, you know, he was saying it would be fantastic if they had a way to have, say, a number of separate little kind of granny flats, um, and a safe place for the, for the kids to play. And he also said, you know, we're all renting, you know, and if we don't, one of us doesn't sort of 
step up to the plate, we're all going to be renting forever. And I think, you know, that just that little story sort of showed me that in the housing area, you know, there's, we have polarities. You know, we sort of think there's renting or owning. There's, there's sort of nothing in between. And, and really the, the sort of um, framing of a problem might be how might we help intergenerational families who, who want to live collectively to have a, a foot in the door into the property market to be able to build wealth and to collectively, which is, you know, something that people love to do, um, to have easy ways in and out. The lab will work alongside the Auckland Council's fledgling venture, the Southern Initiative, which aims to lift some of the country's most deprived urban communities. But a bigger challenge has been thrown the public services' way. Um, I'd just like to introduce Doug Mackay, Chief Executive of Auckland Council. Thank you, Glenn, and good afternoon, everybody. Doug Mackay led the Auckland Council through its first term following amalgamation. His three years as Chief Executive brought him face-to-face with counterparts in government departments and ministries. Since leaving the Council, he's produced a report for the State Services Commission on the effectiveness of central government in Auckland. The report's been closely held since its completion late last year. Speaking for the first time to Insight, he says he's not proposing new structures in the public service, but more executive authority based in the city. What worries a lot of people I talk to is the capability for policy development for Auckland in Wellington is very low at the moment. We have Wellington officials who just don't understand enough about Auckland. And there's a danger because Auckland ministers and Auckland MPs are very engaged with their communities. They know, they've got their finger on the button of their communities. But they're at a disadvantage because in the absence of really high-quality policy development for Auckland, which we're not getting out of Wellington at this point, those MPs and ministers are subject to a lot of advocacy from interest groups in Auckland. And in the absence of policy to compare what they're being told against and to influence what the policy is, um, advocacy can rule. And I think that's very dangerous. Mr Mackay says there are good examples, with the police and the transport agency both moving early to line up their priorities with those of Auckland's council. He says both also had executives in Auckland senior enough to hold sway at head office. The collaboration and the sharing and the joint policy development that's going on between the transport agency, NZTA, and the council in terms of policy development, long-term strategic planning of the transport network is first class. So those are two examples I'd highlight. But um, what's common is they had a senior executive, if I could call it that, sitting at the ministry's executive table reporting to the chief executive. So part of the ministry, uh, real budgets, and the ability to influence all the other senior executives sitting around the table of their ministry with Auckland's priorities. So I think there's some lessons there, and that's not huge change. He calls for a group of public service executives, one level below chief executive, to be based in Auckland, with the power to work in new ways. The government three years ago set ten big nationwide goals to work towards, under the banner Better Public Services. Doug Mackay says new ways of working in Auckland could make a big impact on some, such as early childhood education, youth unemployment, and the incidence of rheumatic fever, which is highest in South Auckland. It's so complex, you know, to deal with it. It's not a single thing. It's the quality of housing. It's the access to uh, support services uh, like Plunkett and so on. It's um, the health boards, you know, and uh, their role in education. Uh, It's treatment. It's diagnosis. So there's a whole lot of complex factors going on here. It's poverty. 
A lot of it's to do with poverty and uh, the quality of where people live. There's no one ministry, and, and council certainly doesn't have the mandate in this key area. It has a big role to play, but the primary responsibility is in government, and um, I think they could make a very big difference in Auckland, working, working in new ways. The State Services Commission, whose job is to oversee and improve the quality of the public service, is already responding. It's just appointed its first Deputy Commissioner in Auckland, the current Chief Executive of the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, Lewis Holden. Mr Holden will take up the three-year appointment within months, tasked with making decisions based on the Mackay Report. I think there is a real uh, willingness to change, and I think there's a recognition of the need to change. The establishment of this role and and the willingness to look at the, the full suite of recommendations that, that Doug made in his report, I think is testimony to that. Lewis Holden's previous Auckland work for the government was the setting up a decade ago of what's now called the Auckland Policy Office. He says that was a tentative step before the creation of the single Auckland Council to better adapt to the way the region works. Those of us who've uh, lived and worked in in Wellington tend to see things almost from the perspective of the way government is organised. And I think there was a recognition even 10 years ago uh, that that isn't necessarily the way the general public and certainly the Auckland public and businesses and communities and so on see issues and problems. They don't tend to categorise their life experiences into the way government is structured. Lewis Holden says his early work will be talking to the council, local agencies and communities to get their views and then work back into the bureaucracy to see how central government might best respond to their needs. It's a little bit daunting and it's very exciting. I think it's a real recognition of the significance of Auckland in the context of New Zealand and the significance too of central government's role in Auckland. There's something like 90% of total public expenditure in Auckland is actually sourced from central government. So it's a, it's a big uh, role that central government currently plays in Auckland. And if we can do that uh, better, that's a great thing both for Auckland and for New Zealand. The Minister of Business, Innovation and Employment, Stephen Joyce, is wary about how far changes in the public service and policy making in Auckland should go. We are having a look at just how well weighted the, the Auckland end of government policy is. I think that, that is a fair question. So you've got to make sure you've got enough resource and grunt that understands Auckland and it's not just you know the people from Wellington popping up for a day. Uh, so yeah, that is important. But at the same time, uh, I think you couldn't actually have a policy operation that operated distinctly from the rest of the country. Whether, whether Auckland or anybody else likes it or not, the central government has to strike a balance between Auckland issues and, and, and other parts of the country. I mean, Auckland may get to 40%, uh, and either way, you know, whether it's 35 or 40, it's going to be big. But uh, that doesn't mean that it's the whole country. It's got to be a balance. But he says initiatives such as the co-design lab and the work of the State Services Commission are signs of responsiveness to Auckland. I think this year you will see uh, a bigger emphasis, for example, on South Auckland. Uh, if you look at all the stats as the economy recovers, the rest of Auckland uh, is, is significantly better off than South Auckland is. It's always been the way, but now we perhaps have the opportunity with the economy going better to put a more particular focus on some of the challenges of South Auckland. And it's something that 
um, that Ministers English and Bennett and myself have been, uh, been talking through and will talk through with the Auckland Council. The first signs of how central government might change how it works in Auckland could become clear in six to nine months when the new state services deputy commissioner makes his first recommendations. I'm Todd Nile, and this has been Insight. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight.